0: CHAPTER 6. THE SINNER'S EXCUSES ANSWERED Elihu also proceeded and said, Suffer me a little, and I will shew thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar, and will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. Job 36, 1-3. Elihu was present and heard the controversy between Job and his friends. His friends maintained that God's dealings with Job showed that he was wicked. Job denied this and maintained that people could not be judged to be good or bad based upon God's providential dealings with them, because the facts show that the present state is not a state of rewards and punishments. However, they regarded this as taking part with the wicked, and therefore did not back down from accusing Job of doing this. Elihu had previously said that his desire was for Job to be tried in regard to what he had said regarding wicked men. But before the discussion ended, he saw that Job had confounded his three friends maintaining unanswerably that it was not because of any hypocrisy or special guilt that he was so specifically afflicted. Yet it was clear that not even Job had the key to explain the reason for how God was dealing with him. To him it was still a mystery. He did not see that God might have been seeking to test and discipline his piety or even to make an example of his integrity and submissiveness with which to confound the devil. Elihu resolved to speak in God's behalf, and he ascribed righteousness to his Maker. It is my present intent to do the same in regard to sinners who refuse to repent and who complain of God's ways. But before I proceed, let me refer to a fact. Some years previously, in my labors as an evangelist, I became acquainted with a man who was prominent in his town for his general intelligence, and whose two successive wives were daughters of old-school Presbyterian clergymen. He had received many books through them to read on religious subjects, which they and their friends supposed would do him good, but that failed to do him any good at all. He denied the inspiration of the Bible, and on reasons that those books did not, in his view, counter at all. Indeed, they only served to increase his objections. When I got to that town, his wife was very eager for me to see him and converse with him. I called on him, and she sent for him to come in and see the new minister. He replied that he was sure I could do him no good, since he had conversed with so many others and had found no light on the points that so much hindered him. However, upon her urgent request, he agreed for her sake to come in. I said to him at the beginning, I have not come here to have a quarrel with you and provoke a dispute. I ONLY WANT, AT YOUR WIFE'S REQUEST, TO TALK WITH YOU, IF YOU ARE PERFECTLY WILLING, UPON THE GREAT SUBJECT OF DIVINE REVELATION. HE SIGNIFIED HIS PLEASURE TO HAVE SUCH A CONVERSATION, AND SO I ASKED HIM TO BRIEFLY STATE HIS POSITION. HE REPLIED, I ACKNOWLEDGE THE TRUTHS OF THE NATURAL RELIGION, AND BELIEVE MOST FULLY IN THE IMMORTALITY OF THE SOUL but not in the inspiration of the Scriptures. I am a deist. But, I asked, on what basis do you deny the inspiration of the Bible? He said, I know it cannot be true. How do you know that? It contradicts the affirmations of my reason. You agree and I hold that God created my nature, both physical and moral. Here is a book said to be from God, but it contradicts my nature. I therefore know that it cannot be from God. This, of course, opened the door for me to draw from him the specific points of his objection to the Bible as teaching what his nature contradicted. These points and my reply to them will constitute the main part of this section. The Bible cannot be true because it represents God as unjust. I find myself possessed of convictions as to what is just and unjust. The Bible violates these convictions. It represents God as creating men and then condemning them for someone else's sin. Indeed, I said. Where? Where does the Bible say this? Does it not? he said. No. Are you a Presbyterian, he asked. Yes. He then began to quote the catechism. Stop, stop, I said. That is not the Bible. That is only a human catechism. True, he said. But does not the Bible connect the universal sin of the human race with the sin of Adam? Yes, I said. It does it in a particular way, but it is quite essential to our purpose to understand in what way. The Bible makes this connection incidental and not direct. It always represents the sinner condemned as really sinning himself and as condemned for his own sin. But, he continued, children do suffer for their father's sins. Yes, I said. In a certain sense it is so, and must be so. Do you not yourself see everywhere that children must suffer for the sins of their parents, and also be blessed by the piety of their parents? You see this, and you find no fault with it. You see that children must be intertwined in the good or bad conduct of their parents. Their relation as children makes this absolutely unavoidable. Is it not wise and good that the happiness or misery of children should depend on their parents? And thus, this becomes one of the strongest possible motives to them to train them up in virtue. Yet it is also true that the child is never rewarded or punished punitively for his parents' sins. The evil that happens to him through his connection with his parents is always corrective and never as punishment. The man responded, The Bible certainly represents God as creating people as sinners and as condemning them for their sinful nature. No, I replied, for the Bible defines sin as voluntary transgression of law, and it is absurd to suppose that a nature can be a voluntary transgressor. Besides, it is in the nature of the case impossible that God would make a sinful nature. It is in fact doubly impossible, for the thing is a natural impossibility. Even if it were not, it would still be morally impossible that he would do it. He could not do it for the same reason that he cannot sin. In harmony with this is the fact that that the Bible never represents God as condemning people for their nature, either here or at the judgment. Nowhere in the Bible is there the slightest suggestion that God holds people responsible for their created nature, but only for the vile and persistent abuse of their nature. Other views of this matter that differ from this are not in the Bible, but are only false glosses put upon it usually by those whose philosophy has led them into absurd interpretations. Everywhere in the Bible, people are condemned only for their voluntary sins, and they are required to repent of these sins, and of these only. Indeed, there cannot possibly be any other sins than these. Now I will continue with the general idea of the rest of my conversation with this man. He had several objections, and I discussed each one from reason and the Bible. I continued the conversation. I told him that some people say that the Bible portrays God as being cruel, since He commanded the Jews to wage a war of extermination against the ancient Canaanites. But why should this be called cruel? The Bible specifically informs us that God commanded this because of the awful wickedness of the Canaanites. They were too terribly wicked to live. God could not allow them to defile the earth and corrupt society. Therefore, He arose in His zeal for human welfare and commanded the Israelites to wash the land clean of such unutterable abominations the good of the human race, demanded it. Was this cruel? No, not at all. This was simply kindness. It was one of the highest acts of benevolence to strike down such a society of people and sweep them from the face of the earth. To use the Jews as his executioners, allowing them to clearly understand why he commanded them to do it, was putting them in a position to acquire the highest moral benefit from the undertaking. In no other way could they have been so solemnly impressed with the holy justice of God. Will anyone find fault with God for this? None can reasonably do so. Some will object because they see that the Bible allows slavery. What? The Bible allows slavery? In what sense is it allowed, and under what circumstances? What kind of slavery is it? These are all very important questions if we want to know the certainty and the meaning of the things we say. The Bible did indeed allow the Jews, in the case of captives taken in war, to commute death for servitude. When the customs of existing nations put captives taken in war to death, God authorized the Jews in certain cases to spare their captives and use them as servants. By this means, they were taken out from among idolatrous nations and brought into contact with the worship and ordinances of the true God. Moreover, God enacted laws for the protection of the Hebrew servant, which made his situation infinitely better than being cut off in his sins. Who would call this cruel? Jewish servitude was not American slavery, nor hardly any resemblance of it. It would require too much time to go into the detail of this subject here. All that I have stated can be abundantly substantiated. Also, it is objected that God is unmerciful, vindictive, and unappeasable. The gentleman to whom I have alluded said, I don't believe the Bible is from God when it represents him as so vindictive and unmerciful that he would not forgive sin until he had first taken measures to kill his own son. Now, it was by no means unnatural that, under such teaching as he had received, He should think so. I had once thought this way myself. This very objection had stumbled me. However, I later saw the answer so plainly that it left nothing more to be desired. The answer indeed is exceedingly plain. It is not an unmerciful disposition in God that led Him to require the death of Christ as the ground of forgiveness. It was simply his benevolent regard for the safety and blessedness of his kingdom. He knew very well that it was unsafe to forgive sin without such a restitution. Indeed, this was the strongest possible demonstration of a forgiving nature, to consent to the sacrifice of his son for this purpose. He loved his son, and certainly would not inflict any needless pain upon him. He also loved a sinful race, and he saw the depth of that ruin toward which they were rushing. Therefore, he desired to forgive them, and to prepare a way in which he could do so with safety. He only desired to avoid all misconception. To forgive without such an atonement that would adequately express his abhorrence of sin would leave the intelligent universe to think that he did not care how much we would sin. This would not do. Let it be considered also that giving up Jesus Christ was only a voluntary offering on God's part to sustain law so that he could forgive without peril to his government. Jesus was not in any sense punished. He only volunteered to suffer for sinners so that they might be freed from the governmental necessity of suffering. Was not mercy manifested in this? Certainly. How could it be manifested more clearly? But, says the person objecting, God is unjust since He requires impossibilities on pain of endless death. Does He really? Then where? is it in the law or in the gospel? In these taken together, we have the totality of all God's requirements. In what part, then, of either law or gospel do you find the precept contained that requires impossibilities? Is it in the law? But the law only says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. Deuteronomy 6.5. Not with another person's heart, but simply with your own, and only with all your own heart, not with more than all. Read on still further. And with all thy might. You are not required to love God with the strength of an angel or with the strength of any other being than yourself, and only with such an amount of strength as you actually now have. The demands of the law you see exactly meet your ability. Nothing more and nothing else. Some people might not have heard it explained like this before. But is this not just as it should be? Does not the law carry with it its own vindication in its very terms? How can anyone say that the law requires of us impossible service, things we have no power to do? The fact is that it requires us to do just what we can and nothing more. Where, then, is this objection to the Bible? Where is the impossibility of which you speak? But, the man continued, is it not true that, as the Catechism says, no mere man since the fall has been able wholly to keep the commandments of God, but daily breaks them in thought, word, Indeed? Yes, my friend, but that is the catechism, not the Bible. We must be careful not to attribute to the Bible all that human catechisms have said. The Bible only requires you to consecrate to God what strength and powers you actually have and it is by no means responsible for the affirmation that God requires of man more than he can do. The Bible nowhere ascribes to God a demand so unreasonable and cruel. It is no wonder that the human mind would rebel against such a view of God's law. If any human law were to require impossibilities, there could be no end to the criticisms that must fall upon it no human mind could possibly approve of such a law, nor can it be supposed that God can reasonably act on principles that would disgrace and ruin any human government. But, he resumed, here is another objection. The Bible represents us as unable to believe the gospel unless we are drawn by God. For it says, No man can come to me except the father who hath sent me draw him john 6:44 yet sinners are required to believe on pain of damnation how can this be the first reply to this is that the connection shows that christ referred to drawing by means of teaching or instruction for to confirm what he had said he appealed to the ancient scriptures It is written in the prophets, They shall all be taught of God. John 6.45 Without this teaching, then, no one can come. They must know Christ before they can come to Him in faith. They cannot believe until they know what to believe. In this sense of coming, untaught heathen are not required to come. God never requires any to come who have not been taught. Once taught, they are bound to come. They may be and are required to come, and they are without excuse if they refuse. But, he replied, the Bible really does teach that people cannot serve the Lord, and still it holds them responsible for doing it. Joshua said to all the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for He is an holy God. Joshua twenty four nineteen. Let us see. Joshua had called all the people together and had laid before them their obligation to serve the Lord their God. When they all said so freely and with so little serious consideration that they would, Joshua replied, Ye cannot serve the Lord for He is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. What did He mean? He clearly meant this. You cannot serve God because you have not wholeheartedly abandoned your sins. You cannot get along with a God so holy and so jealous unless you give up sinning. You cannot serve God with a selfish heart. You cannot please Him until you really renounce your sins completely. You must begin by making to yourselves a new heart. Joshua undoubtedly saw that they had not given up their sins and had not really begun to serve God at all and did not even understand the first principles of true religion. This is the reason why he seemed to rebuke them so suddenly. It is as if he would say, stop, you must go back and begin with completely putting away all your sins. You cannot serve a holy and jealous God in any other way, for he will not go along with you as his people if you persist in sinning against him. It is a distasteful perversion of the Bible to try to make it mean that people have no power to do what God requires. It is true indeed that in this connection it sometimes uses the words can and cannot. But these and similar words should be explained according to the nature of the subject. All reasonable people interpret in this way intuitively in all common use of language the Bible always uses the language of common life and in the way of common usage. This is how it should be interpreted here. When it is said that Joseph's brethren hated him and could not speak peaceably to him, the meaning is not that their instruments of speech could not articulate kind words, but it points us to a difficulty in the heart. They hated him so much that they could not speak pleasantly. Nor does the sacred historian assume that they could not at once subdue this hatred and treat Joseph as brothers should treat a brother. The sacred writers are the last men in the world to apologize for sin on this account. Then there is the case of the angels sent to hurry Lot out of guilty Sodom. One said, Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything until thou become hither. Genesis 19.22 Does this mean that the Almighty God had no power to overwhelm Sodom as long as Lot was in it? Certainly not. It meant only that it was his purpose not to destroy the city until Lot was out. All people use language like this in everyday life. You go into one of our village stores and say to the merchant, Can you lift a ton of your goods at once? No. Can you sell me that piece of cloth for a dollar a yard? No. Does the first can mean the same as the other? (laughs) By no means. But how is it that you detect the difference? How is it that you come to know so quickly which is the physical cannot and which is the moral? The nature of the subject tells you. But you say that the same word should always mean the same thing. Well, if it should, it does not in any language ever yet spoken by man. Yet there is no difficulty in understanding even the most imperfect of human languages if people are honest in speaking and honest in hearing and will use their common sense. They intuitively understand language according to the nature of the subject spoken of. The Bible always infers that sinners cannot do right and please God with a wicked heart. It always takes the ground that God abhors hypocrisy that he cannot be satisfied with mere forms and professions of service when the heart is not in it, and therefore that all acceptable service must begin with making a new and sincere heart. But here is another difficulty. Can I make myself a new heart? Yes, and you could not doubt so if you only understood what the language means and what the thing is. Look at Adam and Eve in the garden. What was their heart? Did God create it? No. It is not possible that He did, for a heart in this sense is not the subject of physical creation. When God made Adam, giving him all the capabilities to act morally, he had no heart, good or bad, until he came to act morally. When did he first have a moral heart? It was when he was first awakened to moral consciousness and gave his heart to God, when he first saw God manifested and put confidence in him as his Father, yielding up his heart to him in love and obedience. Notice that Adam first had this holy heart because he yielded up his will to God in entire consecration. This was his first holy heart. But at last the hour of temptation came, alluring him to withdraw his heart from God and turn to pleasing himself. The tempter said to Eve, Hath God indeed said, Ye shall not surely die? Genesis 3, 1 and 4. Ah, is that so? So he raised the question either as to the fact that God had really threatened death for sin or as to the justice of doing so. In either case, it raised a question about obedience and opened the heart to temptation. Then the fruit came before Eve's mind. It was attractive and seemed good for food. Her appetite awakened and demanded indulgence. Then it was said to be able to make one wise, Genesis 3.6, and by eating it she might be as gods, knowing good and evil, Genesis 3.5. This appealed to her curiosity. Giving in to this temptation and making up her mind to please herself, she made herself a new heart of sin. She changed her heart from holiness to sin and fell from her first moral position. When Adam yielded to temptation, he made the same change in his heart. He gave himself up to selfishness and sin. This accounts for all future acts of selfishness later in life. Adam and Eve were again brought before God. God said to Adam, Give me your heart. Change your heart. What? said Adam. I cannot change my own heart. God replied, How long is it since you have done so? Only yesterday you changed your own heart from holiness to sin. Why can't you change it back? It is this way in all cases. Changing the ruling preference. The governing purpose of the mind is the thing needed. And who can say, I cannot do that? Can you not do that? Can you not give yourself to God? The reason you cannot please God in your governing acts is that your governing purpose is not right. While your leading motive is wrong, everything you do is selfish because it is all done for the single object of pleasing yourself. You do nothing for the sake of pleasing God, and you lack the governing design and purpose of doing all His holy will. Therefore, all you do, even your religious duties, only displease God. If the Bible had anywhere represented God as being pleased with your hypocritical services— It would be proven false, for this is perfectly impossible. However, you say that the Bible requires you to begin with the inner man, the heart, and you say you cannot get at this, that you cannot reach your own heart and so cannot desire to change it. Indeed, you are entirely mistaken this is the very thing that is most entirely within your power. Of all things conceivable, this is the very thing that you can most certainly do. This is most absolutely within your power. If God had made your salvation depend upon your walking across the room, you might not be able to do it or if it depended upon lifting your eyelids, rising from your seat, or even the least movement of your muscles, you might be completely unable to do it. You could will the motion required, and you could try, but the muscles might have no power to act. You often think that if God had only conditioned your salvation upon some motions of your muscles, it would have been so easy. If he had only asked you to control the outside, you think you could have done so. But you wonder how you can control the inside. The inside is the very thing you can move and control. If it had been the outside, you might strive and groan until you die and not able to move a muscle, even on pain of eternal hell. But now because God only says, change your will, all is brought within your control. This is just the thing you always can do. You can always move your will. You can always give your heart at your own option. Where then is your difficulty and objection? God requires you to act with your freedom to exercise the powers of free voluntary action that he has given you. He asks you to put your hand on the fountainhead of all your own power, to act right where your central power lies, where you always have power as long as you have a rational mind and a moral nature. Your liberty does not consist in a power to move your muscles at your own will, for the connection between your muscles and your will may be broken, and at all events is always necessary when your body is in its normal state. Therefore, God does not require you to perform any particular movement of the muscles, but only to change your will. This, compared with all other things, is that which you can always do, and can do more certainly than anything else. Again, considering the will as distinct from ultimate purposes, and as our standing is considered before our governing acts, it is not the will that God requires, but He lays His demands directly upon the ultimate purposes. The ultimate purposes being given... These subordinate decisions of the will follow naturally and necessarily. Your liberty, therefore, does not, strictly speaking, lie in these subordinate acts of the will, such as the will to sit, to walk, or to speak but the ultimate purpose controlling all decisions of the will and relating to the main object you will pursue, as, for example, whether you will in all things strive to please God, or, on the other hand, strive to please yourself. This, being the precise point wherein your liberty of free action lies, is the very point upon which God lays His moral demands. The whole question is, Will you please God or please yourself? Will you give your heart to Him, or will you give it to your own selfish enjoyment? As long as you give your heart to selfish pleasure and withhold it from God, it will be perfectly natural for you to sin. This is precisely the reason why it is so natural for sinners to sin. It is because the will, the heart, is set upon it, and all they have to do is carry out this prevailing tendency and purpose. However, if you simply change this governing purpose, you will find obedience equally natural and equally easy in all its governing acts. It will then become natural to please God in everything. Pleasing yourself is natural enough now. Why? because you are consecrated to pleasing yourself. Change this purpose, though, and make a new and totally opposite consecration, reverse the committed heart, and let it be for God and not for self. And then all duty will be easy for the same reason that all sin is so easy now. It is so far from being true that you are unable to make your heart new that the truth is you would have done so long ago if you had not resisted God in His efforts to move you to repentance. Do you not know that you have often resisted God's Spirit? You know it well. So clear were your convictions that you should live for God that you had to resist every appeal for your own conscience and march right into the face of known duty, pressing your way along directly against God. If you had only listened to the voice of your reason and to the demands of your conscience, you would have had a new heart long ago. However, you resisted God when He tried to persuade you to have a new heart. Sinner, how strong you have been to resist God! How strong to resist every consideration addressed to your intelligence and to your reason! How strangely you have listened to the considerations for sinning! Oh, the miserable, petty things! Tell me, what were they? Suppose Christ should question you and ask you, What is there in earth that you should love it so well? What is there in sin that you should prize it above my favor and my love? What are those little indulgences, those very small things that always perish with the using? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes 1.2 This is most utterly contemptible. You have been holding on to sin with no reasonable motive for doing so, but consider what matters you have fought against and resisted. They are matters of almost infinite force. Think of the concerns resulting from God's law, so excellent in itself, but so dreadful in its penalties against transgressors. Then think also of God's infinite love in the gospel how He opened the lifetides of His great heart and let blessings flow with His fullness. Then consider how, despite this love, you have insulted your God exceedingly. You have gone on as if the motives to sin were all persuasive, as if sin's promises of good were more reliable than God's when God spread out before you the glories of heaven, made all attractive and delightful in the beauties of holiness, you casually replied, Earth is far better. Give me earth while I can have it, and heaven only when I can have earth no longer. Sinner? you would have been converted a long time ago if you had not opposed God and trodden underfoot his invitations and his appeals. Oh, what a thing this moral force is! How powerful it is, and how momentous, therefore, must its responsibilities be! when God is pouring forth influences in waves of light and power with a kind of moral omnipotence, you resist and withstand it all as if you could do anything you pleased despite God, as if His influence were almost absolutely powerless to move your heart from its fixed purpose to sin. Does it require great strength to lay down your weapons? Indeed, this is quite a new thing, for one would suppose it must instead require great strength to resist and to fight. So you put forth your great strength in fighting against God and would willingly believe that you do not have enough strength to lay your weapons down. Oh, the absurdity of sin! AND OF THE SINNER'S EXCUSE FOR SINNING. BUT YOU SAY THAT YOU MUST HAVE THE HOLY SPIRIT. I ANSWER YES, BUT ONLY TO OVERCOME YOUR VOLUNTARY OPPOSITION. THAT IS ALL. AFTER I HAD GONE OVER THIS GROUND WITH MY FRIEND, AS I HAVE ALREADY EXPLAINED, HE BECAME VERY MUCH AGITATED. THE SWEAT STARTED FROM EVERY pore. HIS FEELINGS OVERCAME HIM. He dropped his head down upon his knees, buried in the most intense thought and full of emotion. I rose and went to the meeting. After it had progressed a while, he came in. But, oh, how changed he was! He said, Dear wife, I don't know what has become of my unbelief. I should be sent to hell. What accusations I have been making against God, and yet with what amazing mercy did my God bear with me and let me live. In fact, he realized that he had been all wrong, and he broke down and became as a little child before God. You too, sinner, know that you should live for God, yet you do not you know that Jesus made himself an offering to the injured dignity of that law that you violated. Yet you have rejected him. He gave himself as a voluntary offering, not to suffer the penalty of the law, but as your legal substitute. And will he have done all this in vain? Do you say, Oh, I am so prejudiced against God and the Bible. What? So prejudiced that you will not repent? How horrible! Oh, let it be enough that you have played the fool so long and have erred so terribly. It has been all wrong. Return at once and devote yourself to God. Why should you live to yourself at all? You can get no good in that way. Come to God. He is so easily pleased. It is so much easier to please Him than to please and satisfy yourself. The simplest child can please Him. Children often have the most delightful piety because it is so simple-hearted. They know what to do to please God and honestly intending to please Him, they cannot fail. No matter how simple-hearted they are, if they desire to please God, they certainly will. Cannot you at least do as much as to honestly choose and desire to please God?